So my husband and I attended a seminar here at Summit. Uh, Ember was probably two at the time. It was called Shielding Innocence. Um, and the point of the seminar was to equip parents to protect their kids from childhood sexual abuse. And they shared just some horrific statistics at the beginning about the frequency of childhood sexual abuse, the, the fact that it's almost always family or friends of family. Um, so it was alarming, uh, to say the least. But then they give you these really helpful strategies to help protect your own kids. And it, it's, it's more than just, you know, don't let them out of the house, don't give them social media, whatever. It's, it's really practical things that you can start doing right away. Um, for example, they said it's really important for you to tell your kids the age-appropriate truth about sex um, and to answer whatever questions they have. And the reason for that is because if you don't, kids are smart. They know. They know if you're telling them the whole truth or not. They're going to sniff you out. And if you're not giving them the truth, they're going to go find someone who will. So uh, one really helpful thing that they suggested for parents of young kids like ours was just very practically teach your kids the correct name for their anatomical parts. Uh, a kid should be able to say that I have a penis or a vagina, not a, a hoo-ha or a wee-wee. Um, which, and, and no judgment if that's your kid, because before the seminar, I just called Ember's parts her bits and pieces. Babe, cover up your bits and pieces, because I didn't know, you know? Uh, but it, it makes a lot of sense. If a kid knows what to call their parts, they can have better boundaries around those parts. They can explain what happened if, God forbid, someone were to touch them inappropriately. So it's really helpful. And, and, and they tell you what to do. You know, your kid's in the bath. So when your kid's in the bath, you say, okay, babe, what, what parts did God, made special for, did God make special for no one to touch? And even at age two, Ember was able to name her parts that God made special for no one to touch. And then we'd say, okay, babe, now what do you do if someone tries to touch that part? And she would go, stop, don't touch my butt. So we did that exercise at bath time a couple times a week uh, until she was really confident in her responses. Now, of course, we had no way of knowing if what we taught her was going to translate to a real-life situation. I, I hope to God we never have to know that. Uh, but it was a really helpful exercise for all of us. We did get a little glimpse of her confidence one day. This was probably a year after the seminar. I was picking her up from daycare. And in the three-year-old room, like some of the little buddies give each other hugs before they go home. It's real cute. So I was picking up Ember and uh, one of her little friends, we'll, we'll call him Logan, um, went to go give her a hug. And I don't know, the poor kid must have like grazed her chest accidentally when he was going in for the hug because Ember jumps back and says, Logan, don't touch my nipples. <laughs> Parents are like, what? teachers. I'd never been so simultaneously proud and embarrassed in my whole life. Because um, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, you tell him, baby girl, don't touch her nipples. And then on the other hand, it's like, I'm so sorry, Logan. <laughs> Logan's mom. I'm so sorry. That kid looked really scarred. I don't think he'll ever touch a nipple again for the rest of his life. <laughs> This is going to be a sermon uh, primarily about sex. Well, it's about lust, but I'm terribly practical, so we're going to talk a lot about sex because I can't fathom why we would talk about lust theoretically. Um, now, that means this is going to be a very adult sermon, and I tell you that up front. I mean, I opened up with that story because I want us to just loosen up, guys. Just, you know, just loosen up. I'm going to say some words. They might not be words that you expect to hear in a church because uh, we don't talk a lot about sex in the church, but we should. We absolutely should because people, including our children, are going to get their information somewhere. And it's not from, if it's not from us, if it's not from a biblical perspective, it might not be reputable information. We're going to get our information somewhere, Every, everywhere actually, because sex is everywhere. And it's, it's ironic because we're not actually allowed to have a conversation about it like this, you know, especially not in church. No, you can't do that. And in that sense, it's nowhere, but it's also everywhere. Sex is everywhere. We can't talk about it, but we can sing about it. 
We can have music videos that depict it. We can have mainstream movies where people pretend to have it. We can have pornographic movies where they actually do have it. Our, our advertisements, you know, billboards and commercials, they're, they're using sex to, to help us buy mustard, you know, or what vacuum cleaner is right for me. I mean, pe people are seeing it. People are talking about it, even if it's not in the church. But since it is our God who we gather to worship every Sunday that invented sex, it feels like a miss that we would never actually mention it because God talks about sex. God has opinions on sex and not just all the thou shalt nots, which there are those uh, for good reason as our passage today will affirm, but that's not all God has to say about sex. I mean, there's a whole book of the Bible, Song of Songs, devoted to documenting the delights of sex including the arousal that precedes it, the rest and closeness that comes after. And it's fairly explicit. The Bible says, he says, your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle. And then she says, let my beloved come into his garden and taste its choice fruits. Hint, it's not a garden, not literally. Okay, God is talking about sex here. He's talking about sex. God created sex and he created it good. And while, you know, we can't ignore its dangers, we miss its goodness when we only look at how not to do it. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at both. We're continuing this week in our sermon series called Undone. As Gary mentioned, we're looking at vices and virtues, the, the, the vices that we often find ourselves engaging in and the virtues that we often leave undone. And this, these next two weeks, we're going to be looking at lust to today and then next week, chastity. And I think that's good, right? Let's start with the bad news. Um, and for this, for this uh, series, we've chosen Bible characters that kind of embody these different uh, vices and virtues, so we can look at them as kind of a character study. And so for our discussion today about lust, I've chosen King David. David David's a complex character, if, if you know a little bit about his story. I mean, Samuel, the prophet, calls him a man after God's own heart, which feels like a really big deal. Uh, but then he also has these weaknesses, many of which manifest in his family life. And if you're familiar with David's story, we're talking about lust, you probably already guessed if you didn't hear Gary say it, we're going to be talking about David and his affair with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. And we are going to talk about that, but more importantly, we are going to talk about the aftermath of that affair. So here's the story. David becomes king, uh, and he just has a bunch of wives. We don't know how many. Second Samuel just says he took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem. And that's after he already had a few. Like, we, we know of at least six. So... It's not a lack of options uh, that pushes him toward Bathsheba as well. But David's sin begins, as most sins do, with him having his body in the wrong place. 2 Samuel 11 begins like this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. I don't even have to finish the sentence. That's told us so much information. In the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. So David doesn't go. He stays in Jerusalem, and one evening he's walking on the roof of a palace, and, uh, of his palace, and he sees a woman bathing on her roof, which would have been normal uh, in the ancient Near East. The roof is a place where you go for privacy, especially for things like ritual washing. Um, but the palace is higher than all the houses, so David sees her. And then there is a series of verbs in quick succession that, that, that happen over the next couple sentences. It says, David saw, David sent, and then David took. He sees Bathsheba, he sends someone to find out who she is, and then he takes her into his bed, even though he knows now that she is the wife of Uriah. And this all began because David had his body in the wrong place. If he had been where he was supposed to be with the troops, he would not have seen. But he sees. And because lust is a greedy emotion, it moves very quickly from the seeing to the taking. So David took. 
And then he sends her home and she finds out she's pregnant. So David calls Uriah, her husband, back from the war, gets him drunk, tries to trick him into sleeping with his wife, and he refuses. Uriah says, I, I can't do that while my men can't do that while they're still off at war. I mean, like, what a guy, what a great guy. So David secretly has Uriah placed at the front of the worst of the battle, orders the other troops to withdraw from him so he's certain to be killed, and he is. And then David sends for the pregnant Bathsheba again and takes her to be his wife. And so that's where our passage is going to pick up today. David has committed the secret sin, and it looks as though he's gotten away with it. Uh, And then God sends Nathan the prophet to confront him. So we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It should be in your bulletins if you'd like to read along. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. And he raised it, it grew up with him and his children, it shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if... All this had been too little. I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this thing you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. My husband, um, he loves adventures, so anytime one of his friends from up north from college or something comes to visit us, he wants to take them on adventures, Um, and we live in Waterford, here in Waterford, and I think one of the selling points to our house when we bought it back in 2012 was that uh, it backs up to the little econ, um, not, it, you, it's not like a full river coming through, it's like just a little bit swampy and wooded um, where it passes our house, but it's the little econ nonetheless. So Rob's friend Alex um, comes down to visit us, and Rob decides that he wants to take Alex canoeing, only he decides that he wants to put in to the little econ in our, from our backyard, and then they're just going to follow the river wherever it takes them. That's the whole plan, just follow it wherever it goes, wherever they end up, that's where they'll be, and my job is to come pick them up from wherever they make landfall. So Rob and Alex, they march out my back door uh, through the backyard with a canoe on their heads and they disappear into the unknown. That was about 9 a.m. About 1 p.m. I get the call uh, that I've expected to come get them. Uh, Now, it's been like four hours, so I'm assuming I'm going to do a little bit of driving at least to come get them. So I say, hey, yeah, great, I'll come get you. Where are you guys at? And Rob says, we're the CVS at Dean and Lake Underhill. (laughs) Now, just for reference, uh, that's 
about a mile from our house, maybe less than a mile. I mean, I could walk there. I get my prescriptions filled there. So I go and I pull up to the CVS and sure enough, there's Rob and Alex sitting on the, on the canoe and they were just destroyed. I mean, just wet, swampy, dehydrated, bleeding from 20 or 30 cuts on each of their legs, just destroyed, covered in bug bites. Apparently, there were so many logs down uh, in the river where it was behind our house that they kept having to get up and carry the canoe and they'd get like three inches and they'd put it back in and they'd get, get, and they'd have to get up and carry it again. And so they just kept getting up and carrying the canoe over and over um, this whole time. And they kept thinking, you know, but if we just go a little further, we're going to get to open river. They kept thinking that. And so they just kept going further and further into the weeds and the thorns and the mud pits until presumably they got faint from blood loss and called me. Now, <laughs> would they have set out on that adventure? If they knew where it was going to take them, bleeding and dehydrated at the CVS, no. Uh, I don't think they would have. But at the same time, I don't think they should have been shocked either. Right? They should have been shocked. They, 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 didn't, they didn't plot a course. They didn't have a map. They put in from our backyard where the econ comes in at maybe a heavy trickle. You know, they, they left it the, the, the hottest part of the day. They kept going even when things were going very badly. It should not have been shocking that they would end up in the condition that they were, bloody and soggy at the CVS. I mean, that's, that's, that's not a supernatural consequence, right? That's kind of, that's the natural result of the choices that they made. When David takes Bathsheba, he didn't mean for all those bad things to happen. David doesn't mean for the bad things to happen, but he keeps walking toward them, which is logistically equivalent to meaning for bad things to happen. It gets you to the same place. And, and, and the bad things that happened, they weren't all that supernatural. I mean, it's, it's reasonable that David's children will follow in the example of their father. So in the next chapters, David's eldest son, Amnon, becomes obsessed with his half-sister, Tamar, and he eventually rapes her. And David finds out, and he's mad, but he doesn't do anything. And, and we don't know why. I mean, it could be that he doesn't want to punish his heir apparent, but it could also be that he's ashamed of what he's already done with Bathsheba. He didn't feel like he has the right to punish someone else for their sexual sin. We don't know. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, is so angry about this episode that he plots for two years to kill Amnon, and he eventually does, and then tries to take over the throne. Uh, he usurps the throne. He takes over the palace. And then to cement his right to rule, he takes all of David's wives and concubines to the roof of the palace and has sex with them. And all of this fulfills Nathan's prophecy. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. But again, even though this fulfills a prophecy, these consequences aren't that supernatural, especially at a time when, you know, polygamy was kind of the norm. What happened with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom feels like the natural result of exceptionally bad parenting, of not protecting your daughter of modeling sexual sin for your sons and, and taking whatever you want, maybe of just having too many kids and heirs and too many wives. It's not at all that supernatural. Because God created us to thrive under a certain design. God created human beings by design, and we will thrive or flounder based on whether or not we live according to that design. I mean, think about it. If, if God created and ordered the heavens and the earth, if he created them uh, with intentionality, to thrive under specific conditions, if he created us in his own image to, to, to reflect his character in the way that we live in that creation, then it shouldn't be a surprise that the natural consequence of living according to that design would bring, would bring blessing. 
that integrity would mean a good reputation, that genuine kindness would mean a multitude of friends, that generosity would mean that we're not in bondage to our things. And it should be equally unsurprising that to live outside of that design would bring pain, that gossip would mean enemies, that lying would mean suspicion, that lust would ultimately leave us wanting more. God's creation will follow its design. It's, it's, it's not always supernatural punishment. Does that make sense? Like, like you know, you don't change your oil. Your car isn't punishing you by breaking down. You don't walk your dog. Dog gets fat. It's all hypothetical, you know? It, it, dog's not punishing you for, for not walking him. When we live according to our design, we experience the natural consequences of our faithfulness. When we live outside of that design, we experience the natural consequences of our infidelity. And, and I, know, I know there's room. I know there is room for divine punishment and divine favor. But, but for me, most of the time, God doesn't have to punish me because the heavens and the earth do that well enough on their own. Now, now I'd, rather, I'd rather blame God. I'd rather blame God when I'm in pain. I want to blame God. I want to believe this punishment is supernatural because then it's his fault. It's his fault, and he's the only one who can stop the pain, and if he doesn't, well, then I guess he doesn't love me that much, but that is a cop-out. It's a cop-out, and I know it's a cop-out even when I'm doing it, even when I'm using that line of thinking. I know it's wrong because, because it's a cop-out because it, it, it alleviates the responsibility that I have to exercise wisdom and restraint in my own personal choices. That's not actually too much of the universe to ask of us. I have to exercise wisdom and restraint. When I embrace lust, when I indulge in it, I choose to walk a path toward my ruin. It might be a very long path. It could be a short one. But here's the point. God does not have to lift a finger to make that ruin happen. When we take steps in the wrong direction, they may be tiny little itty-bitty baby steps, but you take enough of them, and you're going to get to where you're going. You may not mean for bad things to happen, but if you walk toward them, they will. Here's the problem with lust. You can never really satisfy it. No amount of scratching is going to make that itch go away. It always leaves us wanting more. And the reason for this is that sex was not created for pleasure alone. It was created for pleasure in part. That's part of the design. God, God created us as sexual beings. I mean, he knew, God wasn't surprised when humans started having sex. He didn't look at them and go, ooh, I never thought they'd do that with those. You know, like God designed it that way. He knew. He, it's, it's by his design that we're attracted to one another. It's by his design that we're aroused. It's by his design that we have sex. None of that is wrong. He designed sex to bring pleasure, but not pleasure alone. That's where we get tripped up. Lust, lust is a party for one. It takes the good gift of sexual desire and strips from it every other good thing except pleasure. Lust is, is, is obsessed with my satisfaction, my pleasure. And in that way, Lust doesn't make too much of sex. It makes far, far too little. You understand? Sex, sex was designed to give pleasure, yes, but also to bond people together, heart and soul, but also to create new life. It is by nature a life-giving act, even when it doesn't produce babies. It's meant to give life. We just had to have the talk <laughs> with my daughter, Ember, who is five, because she came home and asked 
demanded, really, to know how babies get out of their mommy's bellies. I don't know who started this conversation with her, but she came and she's like, how does it happen? And we tried to sidestep the conversation. You know, we tried to say, well, doctors help the babies get out of their mommy's bellies. And she was, nope, I want specifics. She demanded specifics. So, and I can hear the shielding innocence people in the back of my mind going, tell your kids the age-appropriate truth. Tell your kids the age-appropriate truth. So I look at Rob, and he gives me the nod. And so I go for it, and I say, okay. Well, Ember, you know, babies come out of their mommy's bellies through the vagina. It's like a tube. It con connects your belly to the world. And she goes, like your poop? <laughs> I was like, uh, yeah, kind of like your poop, but it's a, different, it's a different tube. And she's like, okay, cool. So then Rob says, he jumps in, he says, okay, but listen, babe, we, we, don't, it, we don't talk about our private parts to the other kids at school, though, okay? Because they may not know as much as you do, and we don't want to, you know, we want to let their parents talk to them. So, but if you have questions about your body, any questions, you can ask mommy and daddy. We will always tell you the truth, okay? Deal? She goes, deal, and then runs off up the stairs. And Rob goes, where are you going? And she yells, uh, I have to go draw a picture of the baby coming out of my vagina for show and tell. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> like, Oh, I get so many phone calls from her teacher. <laughs> but I wanted to tell her the truth, right? And the age-appropriate truth for us is that sex was not meant for pleasure alone. Lust takes this good gift, and it removes from it the, the bond it creates, and it removes from it the life-giving nature, and, and, and you're just left with the pleasure. It makes it simply an act of pleasure. And even that good component, the pleasure, it damages further by making it a, an act of pleasure only for me, not for us. Frederick Buechner writes, Sex is sinful to the degree that instead of drawing you closer to other human beings in their humanness, it unites bodies but leaves the lives inside of them hungrier and more alone than before. That's why it leaves us wanting more. When we strip sex of every good part of it except this one little piece, of course, of course that's not going to satisfy us. I mean, you can have, you can have lust inside a marriage. Lust is a heart problem. Marriage doesn't solve it. If you look at your spouse as a, as a, as a means to receive pleasure with no attention to their pleasure or their feelings, that, that's lust. Even in a marriage, pleasure, pleasure is a good thing. But I'm more and more convinced that it's meant to be a byproduct of other activities. It should not be our goal. We receive pleasure when we eat good food, when we read good books, contrary to all reason when we exercise. <laughs> you know. But, but, but the goal of food and books and exercise isn't pleasure. The goal is, is nourishment and learning and health. Pleasure is just the happy byproduct. But when we make it the goal... When we take pleasure and make it the goal of any activity, we risk addiction to it. This is science. You know, if you're a heroin addict, it, it, over time you need more of the drug to get the high. It's the same with sex addiction and pornography. Also, by the way, this is not just a men's problem. This is a women's problem too, increasingly. Partially because it's so ubiquitous online that you don't have to go looking for porn. It will come looking for you. I met two wonderful girls over the last couple of years, um, who, one of whom ha became addicted to pornography because of accidental exposure on Instagram. She was just scrolling her feed, and there it was. Another girl ended up with the same problem, but her exposure was against her will when another high school student sent her a picture of his penis. That's a, that's a kind of assault, guys. Don't do it. And ladies, you don't, you don't have to reciprocate it if that happens to you. 
It's, it's, it's looking for us. You don't have to go looking for it. 60% of teenagers look at porn monthly. One in five mobile searches. This, just, this is not just teens. This is all of us in this room. One in five mobile searches is for pornography. And guys, it's not just outside the church. This is inside the walls. This is not a them problem. This is an us problem. And it's not just a sex problem or a lust. It's a justice problem. There was a survey done by an anti-trafficking firm, and they surveyed these, these women who had been exploited, and, and over 50% of the women who were sold for sex said that during the time they were in slavery, they were also forced into making porn. Now, now maybe you don't think porn is a sin. I know people who don't, but, but I think we can all agree that sexual slavery is. And there is no getting around the fact that the two are linked Porn also has an incredibly high rate of addiction and escalation, meaning that what once got the engine revving doesn't work so much anymore, and you have to seek out new and novel and oftentimes dark new images to get the same level of stimulation. We, we need more of the drug to get the high. One blogger writes, as a struggling porn addict myself, I know what the producer said about porn getting more and more brutal for the women is true, and it will only get worse. There's something about human nature that gets desensitized to the ordinary. Because all of a sudden sex, you know, normal sex, normal sex with human consenting adults isn't good enough. I think sometimes we, we tend to give lust a pass because, you know, no one's really getting hurt. That's a lie. People are getting hurt by it. People in the industry that feeds it, that, and, and us, it hurts us. Lust dehumanizes us by making us less capable of enjoying the simple pleasures of sex the way that God gave them to us to enjoy. So, so, so if we want to take this good gift of sex and we want to strip it down to simply my own pleasure, we have to recognize that it strips us down too. It makes us less the person that we were meant to be. It's not worth it. Everyone loses. And listen, I don't mean to just pick on the people who are struggling with sex or porn addiction. Um, I'm talking about, I'm also talking to the relationship addicts, like me. Before I moved to Orlando in 2006, I had habitually, serially been in romantic relationships since high school. And, And they never lasted more than two years because I didn't know it was an addiction. I didn't know I was just chasing dopamine from relationship to relationship. I mean, I had to go through recovery to break my habit. You can get a dopamine hit from porn, but you can get a dopamine hit just as easily by falling in love or or by fantasizing, right, about handsome vampires who longingly watch you sleep, you know? (laughs) Don't play dumb. I've known you've seen Twilight. (laughs) Christians. But that, you know, that warm and fuzzy feeling, that adoration, that obsession even that we call falling in love, it, it has a shelf life. It really does, and if we don't allow the natural transition from infatuation, which is that feeling, to uh, companionship and trust and commitment and all that grows in its place, then then we're just going to keep chasing the dopamine forever, and we're going to act in ways that hurt us and hurt other people, but we will justify it by calling it love. It's not. The first time I told my husband, Rob, that I loved him, uh, he said, thank you. <laughs> um, he's not a jerk. He's a really wonderful human. And so after, you know, after I stopped crying uncontrollably, um, he patiently and gently explained to me that love is a commitment word. Now I have that over the desk where I do my devotions because I don't always feel like doing those either. But love is a commitment word. Um, and he's right, you know? Love, the, 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 the fiercely loyal, gentle, long-suffering, biblical kind. Love the action is not a feeling. 
Love's not a feeling. We, you know, we don't have complete control over our feelings, right? We feel them. We only have control over how we respond to them. Attraction is a feeling. You know, maybe you can't help it sometimes. But listen, you do have control over what you do with that attraction. You have control over whether or not you indulge that feeling, whether you go over it and over it in your head. You know, the grass is always greener where you water it. And fantasizing is, is a way that waters your attraction and makes it grow. Lust is not love. Lust is sexual desire with most of the good parts stripped away, and it can ruin us because here's the thing. Sex will still do what it was designed for even when we abuse it outside its boundaries. So it will still bring pleasure, and therefore it can be addictive. It will still uh, create new life, like the unwanted pregnancy of Bathsheba. And it will still bond people together. Only without the cement of marriage, those people can be violently and painfully ripped apart. You ever try to fix something with super glue and you, and you get your finger super glued to the thing, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And then you pry it off and you know, you're not getting that finger back whole, you know, I mean, that's what, that's what happens with our hearts. When we have sex with people who are not married, we, we, we glue ourselves together, heart and soul. And then when we split up, you know, we don't come back quite whole. Sex is a good thing if we observe the design inside its boundaries. You know, it brings life like a river. Outside of the boundaries, it can bring death like a flood. And lust always lures us outside of the boundaries. That's why resisting it begins with keeping our bodies in the right place. David allowed his body to be in the wrong place, and and so do we. Because, you know, we we want it both ways. We want to walk right up to the line but not cross it. We want to we court temptation, we want to flirt with it, we want to imagine what it would be like in our heads, but we can't slow dance with temptation all night and day and then expect to resist it when the opportunity arrives for that temptation to become a reality. And it always does. It always does. And if you've gone through the motions in your head over and over again, that's what fantasy is. It's like a rehearsal, and just like any rehearsal, it's that much easier to take the stage for a real show. We have to keep our bodies in the right place. And that's more than just avoiding places of temptation. It's also proactively having our bodies where they're supposed to be. If you're supposed to be with the troops, King David, be with the troops. Are there places in your life, are there people in your life that you are not showing up for because you're off courting your temptations? Success doesn't look like staring sin in the face and saying, no, it looks like not staring at sin to begin with. David didn't have his body in the right place and it brought a lot of people a lot of pain because it's not just the sin, it's the fallout. Lust at a minimum leads to secrets, but we see from David's story that it can also lead to murder and heartbreak and death and none of it will be supernatural like a gasoline engine that's running on diesel. If we're operating outside of our design, it's only a matter of time before we break down. One consequence in Nathan's prophecy that does seem supernatural is that David and Bathsheba's son gets sick and dies. And the way that it's written, the Lord has taken away your sin, you are not going to die, but the son born to you will die. The way it's written, it's almost as if the child of David dies in his place. And while... This is tragic and sad. The author is doing something here. He's hinting to us that there is still hope, even when the worst has happened. I mean, maybe the worst's already happened with you. 
Maybe there was an affair. Maybe you did get pregnant. Maybe you just wish that you could unmake some of the choices that you made. Listen, your story is not over. That's not the last line. This child that dies in the pregnancy before it and the affair, that, that's the worst that could happen, but it's also a whisper of what God has planned to do to redeem his people of the fallout of all our sin, all of it. We don't practice the virtues and avoid the vices to get God to love us. He already does, and we can know that because a thousand years after Bathsheba, another son of David's line would die in the place of sinners. Jesus. He came for us. We don't obey God so he will spare our lives. We obey him out of gratitude because he already has. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the gift of flesh. Thank you that through it we experience tremendous joy, tremendous pleasures. Thank you that you put on flesh so that we could understand you better and so that you could lead us home. But Lord, we also recognize that there are dangers to that that our flesh will often lead us astray. And Lord, we just ask that you would take our desires, the desires that started out good, but that have become bent over years of indulging our sin and living in broken circumstances. Lord, would you restore our desires to their original goodness? Would you help us to release the things that we're clinging to, the things that we've become addicted to in the place of good desires. Help us find our way back to what we actually are supposed to want. Help us want the right things. Lord, I know that you have the power to do it. I've seen you do it in my own life. I've seen you restore countless lives through programs like Regroup and SA and, 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 and other avenues through which you bring wholeness and healing. Lord, I know you can do it. And so I beg on behalf of each and every heart in this room that you would help us move toward that so that we would become more the people that you created us to be, that we could experience more of the life that you intended for us and that we can love others the way that helps them know you. And we pray all of this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put our hope. Amen.